Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover. And today on Future Express, we're talking about artificial intelligence in the legal system, and we're continuing our never-ending conversation about technological unemployment. All right, so let's get into it. What do you want to talk about today, John? Uh, I wanted to talk about bringing AI to legal services for a moment. Uh, There's a startup called Legalist. Have you heard of this? No, what's that? Uh, So they are a legal financing company. Let's start with that. Do you know what that is? Legal financing company. I'm going to guess that that means that they pay for people to have lawyers. So legal financing is kind of a new industry. Uh, Apparently it was only started around 1997, but it's basically investing in lawsuits. Oh God. It's basically financing people's lawsuits in in exchange for a piece of it. I mean, a piece of the winnings. A piece of the winnings, exactly. Okay. So it's not like a loan because the person's not obligated to pay anything back. But if the lawsuit succeeds and there's a payout, then if you helped finance it, you're entitled to a share. Right. It's like a business investment. So if the business goes belly up, you don't make your money back. But if they become successful, you make more than your money back. The same idea, I assume, applies here. Exactly. Okay. So I didn't really know that legal financing existed. No, although that's news to me. Although it makes perfect sense when you think about it. it I mean, <laughs> it, uh, it makes a certain kind of sense. It makes sense that it would exist. It seems like it might be something society might not want, but, uh, but let's, let's well, yeah, I'm, leave that for a moment. Withholding judgment for a second, it, sure. I, I, it doesn't surprise me that it's a thing. Okay, I agree. Um, and in fact, there's even a like an American legal finance association or something that started in 2004. And there's a bunch of these companies that do this. So okay. that's not even really a new thing, although we can certainly talk about that. A legalist though is a startup that is going to be a legal financing company, but that's also planning to leverage AI and machine learning to make smarter judgments about which lawsuits are going to succeed or fail by using tons of data uh, gleaned from prior cases and their success rates and, you know, modeling judge bias in different areas. I see. And basically trying to develop a pretty reliable model of, you know, which lawsuits are going to succeed and how long they're going to take so that they can make Uh, smarter investments. Yes. Uh, for the purposes of making money off of them. Right, right. Okay, uh-huh. So I just think that that raises a lot of issues. And actually, um, it, it also happens that the uh, head of this company is a, is a Teal fellow, right? Is someone who uh, Peter Teal... Paid $100,000 to drop yeah, exactly. out of college. Yeah, uh-huh. um, okay. So I've seen a lot of articles that are, you know, making the connection to Peter Teal and his recent debacle with Gawker... And you mean his recent successful uh, revenge suing of Gawker? <laughs> I wouldn't call it a debacle for anybody except Gawker. No, debacle is not the right word, but you know, it, he, he, it's just, a, he just won outright. Like, what's the word? It's a, you know, a thing happened it's with true. Gawker. It was a kerfluffle. In fact, if, in case people aren't familiar with this, which I imagine some of our listeners are, Peter Thiel had a grudge against Gawker and 
essentially legally financed. Yeah, uh, secretly funded uh, an unknown number of lawsuits against them. The most important of which was this recent one with Hulk Hogan, which they lost and which caused the company to be bankrupted and uh, sold off to Univision. The site is closed and Nick Denton, the founder, no longer has anything to do with it. So, uh, you know, they, he, he um, bet on a lot of different horses. Only one needed to come in and he won big time. And he did that because he had a vendetta. So, I mean, this is only very tangentially related. And I only bring it up because yeah. a lot of the articles I've seen about Legalist try to make a big deal out of that connection. Sure. Um, and sort of paint this whole Legalist endeavor with a pretty villainous brush, saying, like, doesn't th- isn't this kind of horrible, this idea of, you know, funding lawsuits for profit? But I actually think it's a little more complicated than that. I don't know if it's a bad thing or a good thing, actually. Um, com- let's actually go ahead and make some value judgments now. What's yeah. your first in- initial okay, response so, to this? Uh, um, I'm looking at, yeah, I'm having a hard time because there's a number of different uh, places you got to look at this from. Let's look at it one at a time from different perspectives. So from the perspective of a wronged individual, mm-hmm. which is, I, I think, the most sympathetic perspective to the uh, people here, this is potentially... Um, actually really good thing, right? Because mm-hmm. let's uh, give them the benefit of the doubt scenario first. I'm a, I'm a small guy. I'm a small businessman or whatever. I, I run a podcast, whatever I do. Mm-hmm. And I get into some kind of legal situation where somebody much bigger than me comes after me. Somebody comes after me for a trademark violation or something like that. And they are a big, deep-pocketed corporation. In the past, I'd basically just have to roll over because I can't afford the legal help even if I would win, even mm-hmm. if my case is good. So if this works the way it's supposed to, and it deems my, it's AI deems my case a, a likely win, um, then maybe somebody will put the money in so that I can win, and then they profit from that. And um, I assume the way the structure works, I would uh, also profit in some, to some degree. So anyway, uh, somebody puts the money in, and, and then uh, the bad guy gets... Uh, defeated in the court and the the small guy who wouldn't have been able to defend himself before mm-hmm. um wins right and that's uh that seems to be like the the good scenario and i do have lawyer friends who have uh said to me that their biggest complaint with the legal system writ large is how tilted it is toward uh people with deep pockets so if this was to allow some equalization of that where you know um profit-seeking individuals who have deep pockets can help random individuals who just happen to be in good legal positions but don't have money um, to win their cases, then I could see that being an overall good. And this is definitely the, the spin I think that the legal finance industry embraces. I mean, if you go to the Legalist website, it mentions the phrase leveling the playing field. Right, right. And I think that is a legitimate problem, so I can give this some credit for trying to address it. But Okay. It seems like there's a couple of other problems here, right? I mean, just I, maybe they've maybe I'm just learning about this, so maybe they've dealt with these problems. But first off, it seems like if this were to take off, it would just increase the number of cases that were brought to trial. Well, and I, I am not an expert on this because I'm just sort of also learning about it now. Um, it may have already done that. Again, this has been a, <laughs> this is actually not new, right? right What's right, new right. is bringing AI to it, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, it may be increasing the number of lawsuits, uh, and 
So societally, we may not want that. I think there's a question as to whether we want to make it easier or harder for just people to get into the legal system uh, generally and and bring more suits and uh, that slows down the process for everybody and Mm -hmm. uh, what have you. I mean, that's arguable. I think you could argue either side of that. But then also, um, there's a potential for weird, perverse incentives to, to take root here, right? Because whether it's AI doing it or whether it's a, a, a VC or a, a lawyer sitting there, you know, doing the math, trying to figure out like how winnable is this case and how big is the payout and, you know, whatever the, the criteria, how quickly will it get through the court system? Those are somewhat tangential to what's just. Oh, well, um, yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe less yeah. so the winability of the case. Maybe that's closer to a, a proxy for justice. But um, something like how complex is the case and therefore how quickly will it go through the court seems like it's utterly unrelated to how much justice will be obtained by, by trying the case, you know, in, in one favor or another. Uh, so that seems like it could potentially be just yeah. queering the system in a strange way. Now, again, this particular company, I think, is, is a good launching point for this discussion. But they're, I think traditionally legal financing companies do focus on things like personal injury. Um, this company is trying to stay away from the part of their branding is they're trying to stay away from that kind of like ambulance stuff. chaser. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they don't want to be labeled an ambulance right, chaser right. type company. Right. So they're focusing on like like small business law, like tort law, things like that. Mm-hmm. Apparently, or that's what they're claiming. Um, but if this is an area that works, then there will be more companies like this. Um, and so let's just imagine, like in the near future, that this machine learning uh, being applied to you know, prior case law really works and sure. really does a near perfect job of determining which cases b- are going to win quickly and how long they're going to take right. and can make smart investments. Right. And let's say that's just spread across the whole legal system mm-hmm. where like if you're anybody anywhere and you have a winnable case, you the, money, the money will appear for you. Right. And that'll probably heavily eat into the money you would make if you somehow financed it on your own, but maybe that's the only option you have. Is this such a bad thing? Or I'm not it just sh- makes, uh, it makes it a much lower risk proposition for the person filing the suit. Because if you have external money coming in, you're not putting up your own money. So yeah, you're giving up the reward mm-hmm. or, or some significant portion of it, but you can also launch many more lawsuits this way. Right. So that would mean that all cases... Again, we're going to just take this to the... That ex- are winnable. We're going to take this to the extreme here, yeah, as yeah. a thought experiment, because that's what we do on Review the Future. Right. Um, if all cases that were winnable were funded and won... Right. Does, is that a disaster, or is that a good thing, or is that efficient? I'm not sure. Well, I suspect that that would have a significant short-term negative effect on the legal system, because our legal system is meant to operate by example. Mm-hmm. And so, y- normally, it's thought that all winnable cases will not be tried in one. A small fraction of them will. They will be given outsized awards in order to d- deter future actors from doing similar things, right? So then, you know, corporate lawyers and other kinds of, you know, insurance executives and things like that will then enforce those precedents on future actors by saying, well, this guy got a huge payout, you know, when he screwed that up. So now, does that it. apply to settlements that happen outside of court? Because I think a lot of these things lead to settlements, probably. Yeah, and I think with the way the thing with settlements is they are sometimes made private 
by the terms of so the So then settlement. they can't be part of the uh, the precedent if they're private. Right. That's the idea, unless it leaks or whatever. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, s- settlements, uh, because both parties are coming to an agreement, they have more leeway to to hold that stuff out mm-hmm. of, of, of the public space. And uh, yeah, so I think it would short term be kind of disastrous to do this, but might be good long term because it would also force us maybe to uh, right size our awards in our justice system. Right. So if the expectation was every winnable workplace harassment suit was going to get a payout, for example, I just use that as a random example. Okay. Then you would imagine the average payout for workplace harassment would go way down, but the total number of harassment suits would probably go way up. <laughs> right? right. And um, I don't know, like I can't possibly imagine, you know, how it would balance out, whether it would be more or less overall, you know, money being spent or more or less overall harassment being done or more or less, you know, like that's, I don't, I have no idea. It seems way too complicated to guess, but. Well, and again, that would mean like more harassment cases being won doesn't mean any more harassment is happening. Obviously it just means more people no, are and convincing cruci- courts that harassment no, has and, happened. That's absolutely right. And yeah. crucially, it doesn't mean that less harassment is happening. It doesn't which mean is that either. What the societal goal you'd think would be right. Like it, it, and that's the point of having it be such uh, the reason some of these settlements I think are so large right. acts as a deterrent. deterrent effect. But if it's everybody who want, who needs a payout gets a payout, then the, the deterrent, I, like you said, the price might have to come down. The if, price is going to come down, which means the deferent, deterrent effect of any individual, you know, payout is far less. But if you're very certain that you're going to get caught, you know, that creates a different equilibrium where people might think twice about harassing mm-hmm. because they're very certain to get caught. So that might be good. So, it, it, yeah, it's just very hard to disentangle the good and bad incentives here. I'm not necessarily saying it's bad, but it's just hard for me to imagine what all the consequences down the line would be. It seems like a very different legal system than the one we have now, where, you know, winability is, is uh, largely... Uh, assessed on a gut level by somebody who's just tried a lot of cases, like, you know, an experienced lawyer, but it's not, it doesn't we don't have this rigorous ability to guess whether the case will go through. What it reminds me of is what we've talked about uh, in the past with regards to surveillance and how if we have near perfect societal surveillance, then this also creates this problem where all offenses that can be caught, right. all minor traffic offenses and drug offenses and so on, right. can be caught, and then the courts get clogged or the jails get clogged. Or people get up in arms because their fees go out through the roof. And, right. Right. Because we don't expect to actually catch everything. And once, if in a world where we can... Right. catch her and punish everything it forces us to rethink everything right much. well either we end up in a draconian hellscape or we liberalize our laws right and we liberalize them to the point where there's something similar to what the de facto laws are now where like speeding's illegal but really what's illegal is like every one thousandth time that you speed you're gonna get a ticket like really <laughs> or really the like problem is being too far outside of the speed that the rest of traffic is falling right like that's what's actually dangerous is when you're not driving the same speed as that's the the the, the little bit of research i've seen says that yeah, yeah exactly that, like driving too slow for a lane is equally dangerous as driving too fast for a lane obviously uh when you are driving fast and you have a collision they're more likely to be deadly both to you and to the other people 
So there is some consideration there. But if everybody's going 10 miles per hour over the speed limit, you kind of should be driving 10 miles per hour with them for maximum safety, I think is the implication of the research. Yes, that's correct. And so again, a law would maybe reflect that, right? Because unless you're going to write all those people (laughs) on ticket. Well, that's exactly what you do. All those people would get tickets just emailed to them instantly the second they start speeding. Of course, I mean, speeding is a dumb example because pretty soon the cars are going to keep us from speeding anyway. But yeah, I mean... But this is similar to that, bringing it back to lawsuits, which is like, yeah. Sure, sure. It's a similar type of thing. It creates an enforcement culture that's really different from the one we have now, and the implications of it are pretty hard to disentangle because it it, it eliminates both our current deterrence and our current expectation of not usually being caught. Here's my instinct about it. So if it's just reflecting the current state, of the legal system again and include so it, it if it's just essentially means that cases that would be won are won or they know that they're going to be won and they settle them which is going to reflect all kinds of problems in the current legal system for example judge bias right so the sure. machine learning algorithms are going to know this is like judge is likely to rule in favor of the plaintiff here so right we- so let's just for an example like say the algorithm figures out this judge is biased against, you know, African-American defendants. Sure. Or something, right? Because it can, it has that data. It can figure that out. So it's, it's, it says, okay, well, this judge, you know, is going to have a harsher sentence or something. Yeah. So then that could exacerbate existing inequalities in the system. Right. So it'll, it'll, it'll reflect those things. And th- this already happens, right? I mean, like... It could pe- do more than reflect them, though. It could, it could make them worse by encouraging more people to bring their cases. Well, so that's right? that was the line I was going to draw, right? Yeah. So right now, these legal financing companies generally don't provide legal counsel. That yeah. falls upon the lawyers that are already retained by the plaintiffs in right, these cases. Right, right, right. So those lawyers have a duty to, say, figure out the correct place to file the lawsuit and know the judges and all that stuff. Right, the strategy of, yeah. of the lawsuit. And the right. legal financing companies are just assessing risk from the sidelines. And same with this, that's sort of the philosophy of this legalist company, which is like, we're just kind of like, we're looking for lawsuits that are already like 50% complete that we need to get over the last hump. Like they've already done the legwork and we're just sort of assessing the risk here. Like, are they going to succeed or fail? Yeah. Where it becomes a much more disturbing is when the AI is leveraged as counsel, right, to exploit the biases on purpose, right? Like when that becomes a tighter relationship. Yeah, but I mean, if the, if the AI says there are biases that are going to go in your favor here, fund this case, and then you fund the case, and mm-hmm. then the lawyer you've retained, or his AI, <laughs> uh, says, let's exploit these biases, the result is very similar like, I don't know that it's necessarily worse if it comes from the... Because I think they'll always keep these things sandboxed. The financing part of it and the... Like, even if there's an AI lawyer, it's going to be a different AI lawyer. Right, they'll have some wall between them. They're going to have to because there's so many rules about what your lawyer can and can't do and, you know, their duties to you as a, as a client. So, uh, I, I feel like just to be on the right side of those things. They'll have to have some kind of wall. I think just the fact that those lawsuits will get funded is already querying the system to a, to a certain degree because, yeah, it's, it's taking advantage of biases, which means it's essentially exacerbating existing inequalities in the system. 
Um, what you're saying is that wall is always going to be porous. Yeah. Kind well, of, right? Or is that what you're like saying? If the funding is there to hire lawyers, then the lawyers will find the relevant biases. That's their job. I mean, maybe they'll fail, but they'll be trying as hard as they can. Well, and then they'll be to trying find- to try to get that money. So they'll, you know what I mean? They'll- That's right. And they're going to learn quickly. Lawyers are not stupid. Yeah. That like, if you present your case in this way, the AIs like it better and they're more likely to fund it, which means you're more likely to be able to do your case and get paid. Right. And that's all that matters to you as a lawyer, really. I mean, obviously you want to win because it's good for your career, but it mostly you want to get your paycheck. You're like any other worker. So, yeah. So, so, so that introduces... So then the big problem is you could have 99% of a state's you know, legal jurisdictions are, let's say they're unbiased enough. The judgments that would have been made would have been a relatively close approximation of the justice that we want in the world. Okay. But there's just one bad apple judge... Right? Right. Or even just a few of them. Ten percent of the judges are like, you know, don't represent uh our societal ideals of what justice should be. Okay. But then basically this system is just gonna route all the traffic to those ten percent of judges or, or as much as they can handle. Right. And so that is just like exacerbating bias, right? And it's also going to... Or amplifying bias. It'll, right. It'll amplify existing biases because, right, it'll, it'll fund the court cases that are going to those biased judges mm-hmm. at a high rate, and it will fund the ones going to the less biased judges at a much lower rate. Yeah. I mean, it depends how big of a thing this is, but I feel like if this became large, um, given our existing system's problems, it could make them worse. It could make them... Sh- the same problems we have now show up to greater degrees in the in the results. Well, I think you know we're gonna see very strange effects when AI gets involved in the legal system, and this is just one of them. Yes. Um, a more optimistic take um, is: uh, Are you familiar with this like nineteen year old kid, uh, Joshua Browder? I believe is his name. I, I just saw this today. I, I I wasn't aware of of that. So he's got a kind of like a website. Is that right? That'll answer. Uh, he's he's got. Questions? He's made an app. Uh, the original app was called Do Not Pay, mm-hmm. and it's designed to help you fight parking tickets. I think it only works in maybe New York and London. Okay, but uh, it sort of automates the process of contesting a parking ticket to got make it. it easy for ordinary people to do so, and it wins a relatively high percentage of cases. And it, again, he's using AI to figure out sort of the best possible like way to in a given situation to contest a ticket and get it thrown out. Have you tried this? How automated is it? I haven't tried it. it I, I've, from what I read about it, I think it sort of walks you through the process. It might be sort of like TurboTax almost, like with the way that walks you through doing your taxes. Mm-hmm. So like it's sort of, here's like sort of an arcane like bureaucratic thing um, that is just too much hassle for most people that are getting parking tickets to like actually deal with. And like, here's like a friendly app that'll sort of walk you through it and make it like, and like automate the parts of it, like writing letters and stuff that would like slow you down or make it not worth fighting. Yeah. Um, that's cool that it can actually write the appeal. Yeah. And again, so like, this might be something we come back to, cause I would like to actually sort of test it. Um, although I don't have a ticket to fight in New York or London. Yeah. We may need a, a listener to help us actually. So if you currently reside in the UK or, the or if you just York, use this app, or if you have ever used this app, reach out to us and let us know, because, uh, I'm very curious to see like an actual transcript of how this works. But he's also, you know, trying to repurpose this for other things, like for getting, uh, housing benefits uh, or housing if you're entitled to it or uh, 
you know, like getting compensation for, for flights. It makes sense. Any yeah. kind of bureaucracy, whether it's corporate or government, yeah. should be susceptible to this kind of chatbot-based help. Where, because it is very formatted. It's very structured. Right. So you should be able to break it down and analyze it uh, programmatically without too much trouble. And then, uh, yeah, like ask a series of simple questions, maybe get some Mad Libs type fill-ins, and then just generate readable text that does what the bureaucracy wants. Now, okay, so if you could reliably defeat all tickets, that'd be a problem. But I don't think that's actually possible. Because my guess is that, let's say they bring this app to California and they use it in Los Angeles and uh, one month every single ticket issued in Los Angeles is defeated by this bot, right? Mm -hmm. I would guess there would be a strong response from the bureaucracy to simply make it harder to get your ticket thrown out and then it would become an arms race that the bureaucracy would actually have a decent shot of winning. Yeah, exactly. Then the AI would adjust to whatever the new rules were. Right. But like the new rule could be deny all appeals, which I kind of think is the rule in Los Angeles already, quite frankly. Well, I've never had luck appealing parking I know, tickets. I know that uh, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of um, friends who have appealed parking tickets and traffic tickets, and uh, I've done a little bit of that myself. And my anecdotal data that I've caught is um, when you do the written declaration, it seems to literally never work. They just seem to throw them out summarily. If you actually go to court, you seem to have a little bit of a chance of them doing something. But of course, then you're spending a bunch of your day right, dressing and up and, and going a robot to court. can't do that for you. So I'm not sure. Well, so here, here's the data. Like I found a little quote from an article. Okay. In 21 months since the free service was launched in London and now in New York, Browder says do not pay has taken on 250,000 cases and won 160,000, giving it a success rate of 64%. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty good, but yeah, I don't know. If you but could... what is the success rate of doing it yourself? Is, is is it just that like people don't bother, so we don't know? Maybe, yeah. I mean, is, but... it, is it simply like it's making something more convenient and it's not making it work any better, or is it both con- more convenient and working better? I guess that's the question I'm asking. I think it's making it more convenient, yes, for sure. Right. But Clearly, I th- that's. But the I case think either. also to the extent that it's using again precedent, again like previous data about what works, which is that's where it becomes a little bit similar to the legal stuff we were talking about earlier. Right. And to what a lawyer does. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Um, I think it's making it more effective as well. Yeah. So I'd be interested to see like what the numbers are and how much more effective, like among people who actually fill out the forms themselves, like let's say in London, I wonder what the percentage is of actually getting, you know, of actually winning. Right. Is it 50%? Is it 20%, you know, compared to the 64 or whatever it is for this. Right. That's, or is it like 63.6? And this is like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it is. So that'd be an interesting thing um, to look at. But I think what's similar about both of these things is that if they really do work as well as they might, uh, they might force changes to the existing legal system because our current system is based on an expectation that things like this don't exist. Right. And when it comes to people getting out of parking tickets or again one of the things the app i think is either it already does this or it's being taught to do this like is helping you get like compensation from airlines you know for like screwed up flights and stuff sure um you know all all these things like where people ordinary people might be entitled either to money or entitled to not have to pay (laughs) when they're being asked to charge right like if 
you know, a, a lot of the way, reason that you know people s- still end up getting screwed is just because of this obstacle of bureaucracy, right? And just the lack of time that ordinary people have to deal with this stuff. So if that barrier is removed, then that strategy of bureaucracy, whether it's coming from a private company like an airline or a public government, in the case of parking tickets, that strategy of just like sort of putting up enough speed bumps and roadblocks in people's way and hoping that that keeps your system from being overwhelmed, that strategy won't be able to be used anymore. Instead, they'll need to just actively make the guidelines stricter. Right. That's really interesting because that can be generalized further, right? Because I feel like this jumps back to the idea we talked about of increasingly effective virtual assistants. Because essentially, all bureaucracy at a certain point can be sloughed off onto your assistant. Mm -hmm. And it will be able to call the DWP for you and reschedule a pickup every week while they fail to make it until they finally do make it. And then it will notice they finally made it and stop calling them. You know, it will be able to fix your credit score or deal with your, you know, credit card problems or deal with your problems with your city government or your, like, I feel like all these bureaucracies that their main strategy is like, or like, you know, uh, so many things, if you buy uh, large ticket items, they almost always have like some kind of rebate. Right. And like the rebate's usually 5% or 3% of the purchase price. It's really small. It takes like 10 minutes to download the file. It takes a while to print it out and fill it and out. They're and they're fully expecting like most people won't mail it in. You figure it out. Right. Yeah. But if I can just tell my assistant, like do all the rebates that I'm eligible for, here's all my receipts, go for it. And then it just comes back and it's like, all right, I did them all. I'll, I'll check in with everybody in a few months. And that's all I have to do to think about it. That's way more likely to get done, right? So all these things that are bureaucratic in nature and are expecting like inertia or inaction to protect them one way or another uh, are going to be threatened by assistance, by just general, just like the general trend of, of digital assistants who are getting better and better at dealing with that kind of stuff. Um, and that sounds that sounds kind of nice, actually. So, yeah, no, yeah. it sounds like a way in which our future actually won't be Brazil or 1984. It'll it'll be that under the surface. There'll still be all that bureaucratic machinery, all that ducting in the world, but we won't have to deal with it because we'll have a really intelligent natural language to ducting translator that's ours mm-hmm. or that's provided free to us by Google so that they can have all our data or something. And it will go and deal with that stuff for us. Um, Although one strategy that can always be used against people is, again, requiring them to do things in person. Like, so if bureaucracy could fight back by saying, you have to be there in person, you got to do a thumbprint, you got to do a retina scan. Right. And that, again, protects them. That can happen, although I have to say, I haven't seen that happening. I don't see that trend. Like, um you know, the DMV here in California, for example, which is like historically is one of the worst bureaucracies to deal with, has recently basically gotten everything online to like the last couple of times I had to do something at the DMV, I was able to do the entire thing from a, you know, I had to log in on a web browser and that was the most complicated part of it. And then it was all done. Um, Whereas like a couple of years ago, I had to do similar stuff and it was 
to make an appointment. Then I had to go down there and wait in line and talk to a couple. Yeah, of but see, the DMV, of course, doesn't have any incentive not to just get you through the system quickly, right? They want to extract the money out of you for like the fees, you know, like to to do a renewal of your of your license. And yeah, I mean, so the on. people who work at the DMV don't even care about the fees, right? Because like it's just a government agency; they're going to get paid no matter what. But you got to assume the larger agency cares about the fees, like collecting the fees. I guess. Yeah. So like you know, yeah, I've I've used the DMV website as well, and so like it it's gotten way better. You're right. But, uh, it's still getting my money. So I, I think that they don't care if that gets streamlined. Like they're not right. Right. Yeah. It gets my money, but it actually gets less of my money because I have fewer late fees now because I'm actually paying things on time. Right. If they're trying to extract late fees. So if they fees, were trying to extract late fees yeah. from me, this wouldn't be in their interest. But I think the DMV worker who's sitting there, you know, processing claims doesn't really have any incentive to process more claims in a day because they're not going to get a dime more mm-hmm. and they're probably not going to get fired if they don't do it either. It's like not that kind of job. So I think by putting it online, having, you know, whoever the coding person is at the DMV put it online, um, then those people just become a lot less necessary and eventually we'll just have fewer of them. Yeah. Well, let's all pray together for a future without bureaucracy. Well, I think, (laughs) you know, I think we need some bureaucracy in the world because there are some things that just have to be handled that way. But the less I as a person need to personally deal with exactly that's what i mean that is really like i mean that makes a big difference but bureaucracy behind the scenes doesn't bother me it's just when i have to fill out a fucking form that that sort of thing i feel like a computer should be able to do (laughs) let's let's move on um that's that's interesting now uh while we're still in this episode Mm -hmm. um i want to make sure we do some follow-up to last episode first of all i want to thank some listeners for sending some feedback to yeah, us. Yeah, we got more good um, messages this week. Yeah. And actually, there, there was too much brought up to actually discuss. But I want to mention one thing. Somebody tweeted at me on Twitter regarding the issue of elder care robots. Yeah. Um, this is somebody who goes by at Cotton Science on Twitter um, and said, uh, quote, regarding robot carers, many will prefer a robot as they won't have to worry about abuse of their loved one or themselves, unquote. And so I wrote back and said, um, well, couldn't you also use much simpler surveillance and AI tech to watch for an ID abuse rather than using a full-on elder care robot? Right. Uh, And they wrote back, quote, I'd say that could be harder, e.g. spotting chronic low-grade emotional abuse also has worker surveillance implications. So what do you think of this? What do you think of, like, is this an issue for elder care robots? Like, like, are they more appealing because of there'd be less chance of abuse to me i don't i didn't find that that convincing i don't find that that convincing i don't think there's honestly as big of a problem uh, with that as the media would have you think i think that's one of those things that it's negative and it gets caught in the media's negativity bias right um you know I, i could i certainly could imagine a consumer who is concerned with elder abuse saying i want the robot you know at least i know that won't abuse me it will follow right you know um, I'm not saying nobody would have that opinion. I'd be surprised if that was the primary driver of, of what was available in the marketplace, though. Um, I, exactly. It seems like too much of a, like a fringe issue. As bad as elder abuse is, I, I can't imagine it's happening in such high numbers that it would have a huge market effect here. I, I, I don't think it does. I, 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 you know, I'm not an expert on that, but my guess would be that we hear more about that than than its proportion in the real world. Um, 
you know, and the thing is that we weren't suggesting nobody would choose to use robots or that there wouldn't be any elder care robots in the healthcare industry. Um, I think they'll be accompanied by people because I think the, the opposite fear of that which is maybe equally irrational, to be honest. But I, Which is that the robot won't handle you well, right? right which is that the robot will malfunction in some way exactly. or misread something and then, you know, think you're dead and throw you over its shoulder when you're still alive or, or whatever, you know, um, which I think those edge cases on both sides will happen and will be tragic when they happen. But I think the majority of the time you're going to have both humans and robots treating people, you know, pretty well. I, I agree with that, obviously. But the other thing that what this made me think of is a related thing. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, what I actually in my head think of is a more compelling argument for why there might be demand for these robots. Okay. Which is just... It, it's common among the elderly, you know, when they're going into care facilities or whatever to sort of lament their loss of autonomy right, in, in, right, in right. the process. And I can imagine the robots seeming like uh, that they offer more independence sure. than being taken care of by a human. Like, I don't need a human there. Right. If it's just a robot, it's more like a tool that I control, right? Yeah. Even if the robot maybe uh, is programmed to do certain things, regardless of whether I tell it to or not, it still might feel like oh, I don't need another person actually watching me. Right. So for autonomy, uh, and also I would imagine for privacy, similar. Yes, similar exactly. Thing. You know, uh, not surprisingly, some people are like uncomfortable with someone else uh, helping them go to the bathroom, for example, which is a thing exactly, that happens to yeah. people. But having a robot that does that, even if you have like a human nurse who comes by once a day and does more advanced things for you, just because you like talking to a human for that part of the job. Uh, it doesn't seem surprise. you know, it seems more likely to me we might have robots that get you out of bed, robots that take you to the bathroom, robots that do a very specific thing for you, robots that, you know, help you stand upright. But someone that still pops in the room and checks on you and makes sure those robots are working and so right, on. Right, right. And, yeah. and possibly some surveillance as well. I mean, uh, you know, these things are not necessarily mutually exclusive and we might just end up using all of them. Um, yeah, I think we will. Uh, in, in, at least for some people, depending on the, their specific circumstance. I think elder care robots will exist. Um, I think there will be a number of jobs within the care uh, umbrella that will continue to um, either be just so complex and varied uh, that you just want a human mind doing that until such time as, as AI minds are just as good as human minds or that you just want a human doing it because you want to see a human's face and, and have that right. assurance that there's a conscious being on the other end. Um, which, which brings me kind of to the other point that I want to make, mm-hmm. which is not related to elder care. Okay. So I, I made kind of a lot of scattershot arguments last episode, I feel like. Um, you did. And I, I wanted to just sort of like, simplify it down to what I think like my core point I was trying to make is, Mm -hmm. which is that, uh, you know, Callum talks about an economic singularity. Yeah. Right. So he's, as far as I know, the person who coins that term, but that's like the moment in which, you know, capitalism, I guess, starts to crumble, right. Which we actually start to shed jobs due to technological unemployment. Right. In a way that's like visible and obvious. Visible and, not, and yeah. Not like, you know, us arguing about, well, is this, you know, things failing to show up in the productivity statistics, but just like six million vehicle drivers are out of work and another several million call center employees are out of work and they're not finding anything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then, of course, there's the more traditional singularity, 
which is the moment at which you have fully human level artificial intelligence that equals and then quickly exceeds the abilities of humans in all areas. Right. Right. And I think the main point that I was getting at last episode is that I increasingly am starting to feel like maybe those two things happen very close together in time. Right, and they I think still that's both happen. Been the assumption of like Ray Kurzweil and other singularitarians, yeah. they didn't think there was an economic singularity that was going to happen first. They seem to think we're going to smoothly transition from our current late capitalist society into a post-scarcity society, and that that's going to happen. Well, I don't know how smooth it's going to be. Well, because we wouldn't call it a singularity. Smooth like, is maybe the wrong term, but uh, we're going to just quickly uh, and without an intermediate phase transform from one to the Or maybe the intermediate phase is three years. Right, right, right. In other words, contrast that with how I, how I used to feel about this issue, which is I used to feel, and, and again, I'm not sure what's going to happen. This is all just like gut instincts at this point, because that's all anybody has. Right. But I used to have the sneaking suspicion that with, you know, things like self-driving cars on the horizon, this is like the first domino that's just going to start this relentless process in which we slowly shed jobs and have to make this painful economic transition and that this is going to happen very soon. Yeah. And I'm thinking that's still possible, Mm -hmm. but I'm feeling more like, no, maybe actually the economic singularity and the regular singularity are going to be pretty close together. Maybe there's like three years in between there that's going to get, could get ugly, but I'm not imagining there's like 20 years between them. Well, I guess uh, if um, Kurzweil's date of 2045-ish is right for the singularity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, we'd, in order for there to be 20 years, technological unemployment would have to ramp up very soon, like within the next four or five. Well, and I used to, that's sort of how I used to feel. And yeah, and that may, may or may not happen. It's really hard to guess. Um, it does look as if self-driving cars are going to arrive on time. And that by 2020 or so, we're going to have them on the road for real, like not just a test or a, mm-hmm. a, a beta product, but like a real, you know, every manufacturer will have at least one and there'll be plenty of them out there. So we'll see I, if that sparks off a cascade of human job losses or if it's more like a trickle. And we'll also see if the new jobs created in those worlds are... Uh, lasting ones, or if they're the kind of thing that as soon as you come up with the job, you can program a computer to do it. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I don't think I've ever been convinced it was definitely going to happen, but I don't feel like, I don't know, I don't feel like anything's really changed my mind on it either. Um, it seems like possible. Well, you know, so like, um, um, well, how do you feel about creative work, right? So we... we do you think it's possible to have an economy where most people are employed doing creative things like design work? And uh, no, no, you don't think that's possible at all. No, I don't think most people will pay extra for design. Well, I don't mean pay extra for design. Well, what I'm saying is that very few designs can probably satisfy most needs. So I don't think there's endless elasticity on design work. I think there's some, you okay. know, like I think there's like, we will create some slack and it will be filled some of that slack by design. Right. Now let's add back in care work, right? Like this complex care work. Yeah. And also add back, it, just add back anything that's not like heavily standardized. Like we, again, we talked about plumbers and homeless. Plumbers and, and ho- housekeepers. And, and okay. And so like put all that stuff together and also put, you know, in the, the service industry, whatever that looks like in the future. 
Um, well, I'm very worried about the service industry. Yeah, I mean, it seems like most services can be automated. But again, like, you know, how how easily can you make like a hair salon robot? Right. Well, I, hair salon is, I think, in that same category as housekeeper and plumber. That's something where uh, it's really varied okay. from moment to moment. But anyways, all those, all yeah. those kinds of jobs. Yeah. The usual response here is, well, but those can be automated too, right? Yeah. And we invoke that a lot, right? Like last time we talked about, you know, a robot that can create movies, right? Sure. Um, and to me, like, it's fun. While it's fun to talk about that stuff, like what, a robot that I guess could write scripts and produce them, that's got to be so close to just right. full-on artificial general intelligence that like... Like, for example, like if you have the robot that can do, say, graphic design as well as a human, or that can be a complex caregiver as well as a human, I have a feeling that you're only like a couple years of R&D away from a full-blown AGI at that point. So I feel like a lot of the speculative robot scenarios we talk about... The way that I look at something like graphic design is not the robot does it. The way that I look at that is the current trend continues, which is that the software makes it easier and easier for people to do with less and less skill so that you can do more and more of it as a particular person in a given day and the cost of it goes down. So I, I right, think so that's there. There's a huge category of things where I don't think the job disappears. I think the number of people doing the job shrinks or the amount of work done by the current amount of people doing the job increases. The productivity per worker goes up, but I don't necessarily think that the job itself goes away. Right. Okay. And this is where I do get pessimistic. Okay. So this is the other side of the coin for me. So um, despite everything I've just been saying, yeah. when we start talking about winner take all markets and the superstar effect, yeah. that's where I actually say, okay, now here's where I see where technological unemployment can happen. In fact, I increasingly feel like the whole technological unemployment issue it's really just is issue. the superstar effect. And, and like, I think that's the biggest part of it. I mean, I don't think you can discount self-driving cars and some of these other just straight up replacements of a human skill. I think some of those are for real. So just for our audience sake, since we haven't talked about it in a while, the superstar effect is, you know, these winner take all markets where one person with the help of technology, their reach is expanded to where that they can serve a lot much larger market than they used to be able to serve. Right. And there might be, you know, a second best person in that market that could do almost as good a job. Right. But why would you ever go to them when you can go to the superstar in the market? And the right. superstar quickly takes all of the market share. Right. I mean, the, the analogy is to movie stars, obviously, and movies were one of the first technologies that allowed this, where like, you know, a local actor in a local theater only needs to be the best actor in that town or that theater to get a job. Right. But a movie actor has to be the best actor in the world to get a job. And of course, they make a lot more money, but none of that money goes to all those second and third and fourth and fifth best actors out there. That's a good example. Um, and I mean, that's the analogy that, I mean, it's, well, that's why it's called the superstar effect, I imagine, or, you know, music and- Well, music is the other music example. Music and movie stars. Um, and music is, has, has operated the same way since the era of recording. It does seem like internet technology and uh, communications technology that we have now increasingly makes many types of fields into these- winner-take-all superstar markets. And AI assistants, I think, also militate toward that. So one lawyer who has a great reputation as a lawyer and has software that does 99% of his cases, and all he has to do is sort of go over them and add that 1% that's mostly just 
his reputation being put on the line. Right. And then maybe has a little bit of additional human whatever that, that the computer doesn't do yet. Um, that guy, that lawyer can do many more cases in a day than a lawyer can now. We're going to come back to the graphic designer, right. right? If you have like a really smart assistant that knows your style yeah. and knows how to quickly mock things up for you. Right. Again, that sounds like still like to me, like honestly a very difficult AI to write, but you could imagine that somebody working well, but, with really good tools might be able to serve right. I mean, 10 times as many clients maybe or twice as many clients. Absolutely, a graphic designer now versus a, a drafter in the 50s. You know, right. Somebody now using a Illustrator, which doesn't really do anything for you. It's right. just a tool that you use. It's just a faster, better tool where you can reuse your ideas more easily. Um, that person's going to be able to do a lot more work than a than a. But a there is more de- more demand for graphic design work Absolutely. than there ever was in the past. So that is where the there's Luddite slack. fallacy is applying, though. Yeah, there's, for there's now definitely a- elasticity because a lot of people now want websites, and that's a graphic design job. For example, there's many yeah. other examples of that. Absolutely. Um, so there's more graphic design being done than ever before. There's more people who are graphic designers than ever before. The productivity per graphic designer is also higher, right? That's our current world. Right. So, so that would be give you, seem now, to give you some hope that that could happen everywhere. Just imagine that Illustrator starts doing just a few things it doesn't do now, like um, automatically uh, setting your text and automatically centering your graphical elements along axes, right? And that you can maybe... Uh, answer it a few questions or show it a few of your previous designs so they can learn your preferences and then, and then mock up just those elements. And you still have to do the artwork part by hand and you still have to do, you know, the fine tuning of the fonts by hand, but you can hit a button and it will auto uh, do a, a mock-up, right? I mean, that doesn't seem like that's so crazy that, um, yeah, but doesn't that just continue the trend of making it, people more productive, but also making the graphic design work cheaper, cheaper and, and maybe more accessible. And uh, to the extent that there are even more people who want graphic design work, they'll just snap that up. But at some point that elasticity ends. But where does that end though? Because it's it, like well, for graphic design or for everything, I think for graphic design, I think it actually ends in a very high place. That's what I'm saying. Because that's yeah. one of those few things where you can have an endless number of web pages. Therefore you can have an infinite amount of graphic designs. Um, and there's more life than web pages too, but that's, you know, that exists, so let's use that. And uh, not everybody's going to want one, but a significant number of people, if it's cheap enough, would like to have at least, you know, their own website. Um, So I think there is a significant uh, amount of, like you might, if the price is low enough, you might buy some graphic design even expecting no return, just to have it. Just to have some custom. Exactly. Well, that's what I was sort of, that that, that returns me to my original question though about design, because that is an area where I just see like, yeah, you just keep, like, it does seem like the cheaper and gets the demand does just keep going up. And I'm not sure where that ceiling is. But I think there is a ceiling because you still will eventually run out of people and attention. I mean, at a certain point, you know, what are you designing it for? You only have so many things you can look at in a day. You only have so many houses you can live in and... Um, cars you can drive and right. spaces you can be in. Um, graphic design and uh, the other one that seems like it has a really high potential for growth to me is virtual world design, right? Because you can have endless number of VR spaces, you can have endless number of web pages, and to some extent, every person on the planet might want to have you know ten of their own or something. But then at that point. Well, that's the thing. That point, there still feels like there's an end to me. It's It's not limited by attention because it exceeds attention because people 
make stuff that nobody looks at. Right. So, the, but there is a limit to how much stuff you'll make that nobody looks at for money. Like, I might make one thing that nobody looks at for money, but I'm not going to make a million things that nobody looks at for money. There is no, definitely no. a limit. And I think, you know, yeah, that's a place where I think the limits are higher than elsewhere. And well, so that's why I brought it up originally, because I think there is a lot there. But I do, you know... I, yes, but I think graphic design uh, and its cousin VR design are, are unusual even among design disciplines, because interior design limits out at one per household. Like, you could have every single house interior designed, let's say, every year. But that's it. I mean, you can't really... You're not going to do it every second. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, so that's not a good example. But what about audio design? Or what about, like... Well, audio design, basically, almost no one pays for. So I I think, you know, there's probably growth potential there. But from from almost nothing. From a... From an industry that exists only in the professional... No, I mean, there's people that I would pay to edit our podcast if they gave me a good rate, but the rates are too high for me. Which, I mean, that's not way, really audio design. That's job. more like audio editing, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that is something that hopefully the computer will do for us soon. But there's, you know, yeah, you, you can have, tell it to just get the pauses and the ums out. But the thing is, I actually want a more of a critical eye than that. Sure. Like, yeah, I sure. mean, so I don't know. I mean, anyways, we've, I don't want to talk this to death. Um, but I just think the elasticity on, say, audio design is extremely, exponentially, giantly less large than, say, graphic design. I just think there's far more instances in your life, or far fewer instances in your life where you need some audio. But I kind of feel like there's maybe a... So, I mean... But I, not, not I, to say there's no... Graph. But I have a feeling that there's maybe a lot of things like graphic design. I mean, like, that's one where you see that there's a high ceiling, and I feel like there's kind of a lot of those things out there. I mean, I, I, I'd i have to go away for a second to make a list of 100 yeah, of them we'll and come back to Yeah, we'll have to come to back to that, because my instinct is that there's a relatively small number of those things. Not none... At least two, but maybe less than, definitely less than 100 and maybe less than 10. Okay. And I think if you were, let's say there's 100 of them, I'm still skeptical that that's enough to support uh, a large segment of the population in the way that, say, manufacturing once did. No, but I don't think that we can expect that that one area, again, it's got to be care and all the other things we keep talking about. Like, it's got to be all of those things. That's why that's why my arguments are a little bit scattershot because I try to say, well, it's a little bit of A, a little bit of B, a little bit of C, a little bit of D. So any one thing I put forward as a job category, you can say, well, that's not enough. But that's why I'm trying to put forward right. several. But I guess I just feel like none of them are on the right scale. I feel like all of them are going to be like in the maybe hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of workers. And none of them feel like they're in the, like the 10 or 100 right. million workers category that we need to be in. Well, I'm going to keep trying here. Because, Part, yeah. Because, I mean, I think what we have to recognize is, like, we're replacing manufacturing. Right. Like, and... Well, you manufacturing, and I, You and I though. have been born in the deindustrialized era. Right. We've lived through deindustrialization. So, like, we've only ever known a world that had started closing factories and was, was moving along that deindustrialization path. But I think, realistically... I mean, the service industry, the service economy is is shrinking, is, or is is potentially shrinking due to AI, but the manufacturing economy is going to be eliminated. It's, yeah, but is the service industry like, showing any signs of shrinking at this point in time? I don't know, and or I, is this just speculation I, that this it is will? A, this is speculation because that's the thing that I'm actually very skeptical that we're actually going to see that in the near future. But we'll see. Right. So what's happened is the the service industry has been growing over time over the right. our lifetimes to try to pick up the slack 
that's already been created because of automation in manufacturing and right. because of other things like uh, offshoring and stuff. And uh, that's, uh, you know, it's already been picking up the slack. I mean, yeah, I think that the general trend will continue and that the service industry will continue to pick up more of the slack uh, than it's picking up now. Um, so I think we're in agreement there. Uh, whether we're going to get to a place where, you know, like with agriculture, like 3% of people are still engaged in some sort of manufacturing task and like everybody else is in a service. Just, I don't know. It seems unlikely to me um, since a lot of these services do feel like they are automatable, maybe not to zero jobs, but to this like winner take all situation where very few people provide a lot of the services. Right to the world. Well, we'll have to see. And I, I want to just sort of speak to our listeners for a second to say that like we started this whole futurist thing with our blog, Decline of Scarcity, just to talk about technological unemployment. And that was a big impetus in starting this podcast as well. Right. Like you and I just basically having conversations about this fear was what was what got us into this. Right. So yeah. I, I just want to stress, despite how I'm talking, I am very much concerned about technological unemployment. I'm really driven by Wanting to try to make a strong argument, though, for why it might not happen, it's almost a little bit of playing devil's advocate, and it's a little bit of frustration with the other people that, like, there's a lot of very smart people that don't think this is a problem at all, but I'm very disappointed in the arguments that they're making. There just seems a lot of the same just pointing to, you know, the traditional economic consensus and, and the history. Right. Um. Well, and never really addressing the, the, the couple of good answers as, as to why this time is different, right? I mean, I mean, Robin Hanson will always say, well, why do you think this time is different? Why do you think this time is different? And when you say, well, because natural language processing and vehicle piloting were never on the horizon before. Right. Those seem like game changers in a big way. Those seem like skills that are the single fundamental skill of several jobs. Right. Then there's no answer to that. Like, then that's where I feel like the answer... Well, the answer can always be because there will be new jobs in the future. Well, we all agree on that. Well, and, and but nobody, no, but, nobody's arguing. No, but you can always, the answer, you can always say, well, there will be enough jobs and people can say, what kind of jobs? And then you can say, well, I don't know what kinds of jobs because I don't have, like, I'm not smart enough to conceive of what a million entrepreneurs are going to come up with in the future. Sure, Obviously, that's beyond my intelligence. Right. So I'm not going to attempt to paint a picture for you of what jobs look like 40 years from now. Uh, that's incredibly detailed, but you know, I wish people would try harder. Yeah, I feel like from the point of view of, I mean, maybe I'm, we're in a different place than I think we are, but from the point of view of like the people looking at the looms in the early industrial era, you know, um, like the Luddites, uh, they were able to look at the the mechanized looms and go, this isn't the only thing that's going to get mechanized. Other things that are currently made by hand are going to start being made by machines like these looms. Mm -hmm. Now I can't design them because I'm not a machine designer, but I can extrapolate that like, you're going to probably make locomotives in a machine very similar to this one that makes rugs. Right. Because I can tell that those are both human Like those are both physical processes that used to be done by humans. And this is how one got automated. And so why not, why wouldn't a similar process um, affect that and I think it's not that different from uh, our 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 situation today. If we can teach machines to pilot 
uh, vehicles in unknown situations, then we can teach machines to do a lot of things in unknown situations. And um, maybe we don't know the specifics of how it's going to work, but we can guess at the general outline of the capabilities. Um, or at least I, I hope we can. Otherwise, what are we doing here? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, otherwise, this is even more idle speculation than I thought. <laughs> no, no, we're we're trying. We're trying. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So I mean, I guess we'll have to see what the. I mean, we're gonna live very soon through the effects of self-driving cars, and we'll have to see if that turns out to be, you know, the start of a major sea change. I'm I'm more skeptical that it will be than I used to be. But I really can't say for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll have to see what the societal adoption is. But if the pattern of societal adoption is that car ownership becomes more centralized, like Google and Uber own the cars Mm -hmm. instead of you and me, and basically taxi services become so cheap because they're automated or partially automated or mostly automated that everybody chooses those over car ownership. And if electric and lower weight vehicles become the standard, because most or all vehicles are self-driven, and so the safety concerns um, and the weight that comes with a combustion engine are no longer issues. Mm -hmm. If all that's the case, which I think there's a lot of variables there, but if all that happens, then the knockoff effects, I think, of self-driving cars are going to be massive because not only... Well, we, well, we did an episode where we listed all these, yeah, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm just rem- reminding... No, I was just telling the listener this. if you want to go back That's and right. find that one. Uh, this will be... That one will be more reasoned than what I'm recalling off the top of my head here. But like the auto body shops that line our street will all go out of business, you know, within, right. within 10 years because the fleet will turn over. Nobody will have very many old cars There'll be one classic auto repair shop on the corner and the rest of them will all go, right? All kinds of, you know, auto insurance will drastically change from a a retail industry to a business-to-business industry where probably the profit margins will plummet. Um, Well, you know what I'm curious about? Can I just throw a question to our listeners for a second? Yeah. Uh, If you listen to this and you drive for a living... Yeah. Which is a lot of people. So I got to assume maybe amongst our listeners we have a truck driver or two. I would hope, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're a podcast. We're free audio content. It's yeah, like, exactly. We're really good uh, value to, to, <laughs> to long-haul drivers. I wonder if people that are driving and are listening to our podcast, are you starting to plan for other work? Like, just in your own life right now? Right? Because you got to assume people that listen to our podcast are... Um, you're more, thinking about this. You're on the front lines of thinking about this ahead right. of everybody else. Right. Right? And, and you must know that your job category is under fire. So I'm wondering, like, what personal life changes are you making already? Because that's, that's the thing is, like, again, you, when you say, like, 10 years for this stuff to phase out, like, there is time there for people to adapt if they start early. Yeah, and if there's somewhere for them to land, uh, which, you know, obviously, that'll be different from person to person. But, right. Uh, yeah. But I would love to hear yeah. from some actual, like, people who do this for a living and what they're thought process is right now around this. Yeah, sure. I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the if it was just that like 6 million people lost their jobs, mm-hmm. it's taxi, bus, truck drivers, they all lost their jobs. And maybe that happened somehow like magically overnight. Like the government passed a law that 
all driving must be done by machine as of tomorrow. You know? Right. I mean, this is a little bit of a thought experiment. This isn't realistic. Uh, if we, but, but there was no knock-on effects. But somehow all the you know, auto-related industries that are out there in the world would be untouched, not to mention delivery and all the other complicated things that get into, you know, once you start thinking of vehicles as just being, you know, anything that moves around rather than something that's a car size. But la- leaving all that aside, then I, I wouldn't be worried about this. I'd be like, well, 6 million people, that's a shock. You know, that'll, that'll push unemployment up a percentage point for a while. Government might have to give those people a check or, a, you know, free education pass or something. Right. But it doesn't feel like a societal problem. It only feels like a societal problem if the knock-on effects are large enough, you know, that we get depression levels of unemployment, <laughs> basically, out of it. That we start to see so many people scrambling for the jobs that are left that, you know, uh, competition goes up and wages get get stagnant. And, you know, that's, yeah, we'll just that's, have to see. Where, that's where I worry. I don't know how likely that is. Um, but if we adopt these things in a particular pattern, it's going to be so good for our economy in so many ways. It's going to connect so many people and create so many opportunities that don't exist now. And it's going to create a lot of wealth. But I think there's a possibility that none of that wealth will go to the people who are displaced, or, or a very small amount of it, and that they won't necessarily have another productive place to go. Right. And here's where things can get political, right? And not just predictive, right? So that's the other thing I kind of want to express about my point of view here, Mm -hmm. um, which is just because I'm saying I think maybe capitalism could last a lot longer, maybe until right up until a few years before the actual singularity, just because I kind of feel like that's more plausible than I used to. Mm -hmm. um, That doesn't mean I think it should, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean I don't think there should be strong social safety nets in place for everybody. And it, you know, it doesn't mean that like in an ideal society, I wouldn't hope that, you know, we had the equivalent of a basic income or something like that, that would, you know, make sure people were taken care of no matter what, and that we weren't finding some way, you know, structurally to share this tremendous wealth that's being created by technology without getting too specific about policy. Like I'm not, I'm not married to capitalism and I'm not, well, except in the idea that, you know, you're inside it. I'm you inside it and dependent on it. You can't imagine a world without it, really, because but yeah. it's so, so all-encompassing. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, right, I get that. I, I definitely question whether our current incarnation of global capitalism is the best way to organize the world, and um, question even more whether it will make sense in a post-scarcity world. But between now and then, I mean, the reason that when we first read the Ford book all those years ago, mm-hmm. the reason this that- This was lights in the tunnel. Yeah, the lights in the tunnel. I was initially, you know, relatively swayed by the argument, but not at all on board with UBI. When I first heard about that, that's where I first heard about it. And I was like, ah, uh, this seems like propping up all the bad things about the system. And I didn't understand why that was the right move. And it wasn't until we spent pretty considerable time, both of us like reading up on other alternatives and talking them through that I started to come around to it just because it seemed like the most plausible and least disruptive. I mean, it was a way, and Ford pitched it this way. It's like a way of basically saving capitalism or at least the parts of it that I'm most interested in, which was the competitive market forces part of it. I'm not as convinced by the part that's about, you know, letting the people who own the most make the most decisions that part of it 
I think is questionable. But but the part that's like you know getting people to participate in markets and test their ideas and uh, against uh, people's choices with a scarce commodity like money, that part of it does seem to benefit the world as far as I can tell uh, when it's implemented and and I, I want to keep that it's you know it can be a really effective bottom-up decision-making process you know it, it's and it's good for particularly technological innovation it seems like yeah it seems like you know um, that's a way of promoting that that uh, that does seem to work so uh, you know I'm I'm in favor of that element of capitalism being uh, preserved no matter where we go next. Well, and I feel like basic income kind of enhances that by giving people more... Uh, market power. More market power mm-hmm. to say no to certain kinds of labor. And also to say yes to certain kinds of products, even if they're not rich. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so too, and I've come around on that. But um, I think it's actually a pretty conservative, small c conservative, like sort of, you know, pro-capitalist approach. Well, it's interesting too that you say that like you started out buying the technological unemployment arguments, but not buying UBI. And yeah, that was my initial read on, on Ford all those years ago. Cause I'm increasingly feeling like, as I've expressed, like more and more skeptical of technological unemployment. Right. But, but you remain a almost fan of more UBI. in favor of UBI. Like, and I almost feel like UBI could enhance and speed up the kind of technological employment that we want. And like, in other words, mm-hmm. Um, the kind that's freeing people from drudgery. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that, and I've come I've come around to that view. Yeah. But I I didn't have that view initially because I I mean because I am skeptical of capitalism and because I'm a I was a, worried at first. I was like, oh wow, this sounds both politically infeasible and also like it you know sort of props up this system. Which should we even be doing that? Um, but the more I think about it, the more I think the alternative to propping up that system is is bloody conflict and right uh i i think we ought to do it because i think bloody conflict is bad for everyone um that's been my evolution on this and as far as the technological unemployment thing goes i think you can't not be somewhat skeptical of it i mean i think nobody is credibly going up there and saying this will definitely happen and we're definitely going to have a problem as a result but most futurists and economists when we started this did not think it was going to be an issue and would hand wave it away and just say, oh, well, technology always destroys jobs and it always creates them too. And uh, I just don't think that's an ironclad law of the universe. I think that it depends on how much it substitutes for human labor and it depends on how much elasticity there is for various services. And unless there's enough, it's a problem. And again, there's a point at which requiring people to have jobs it's just silly. Maybe it just doesn't make sense. Right, 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 right. right. That's, that's and, true too. And, and that's where ultimately this always comes back to culture. Right. Right, which is that like, we could maybe end this capitalist thing now. Sure, they've today. done it other places, so you definitely can. Right, but we could maybe end it more successfully than ever before in 2016 with the technology we have now. Sure. I, think, I think maybe we could do even a better job if we wait till 2030. Sure, you know? sure. But like, as we get, as our technology gets better and better, right. it's going to become more and more appealing to try something else. We could also, I think, I believe if we truly wanted to continue capitalism indefinitely, even if that means inventing silly job categories, I think we can do that too. Right. No, I agree with that. I think that um, that kind of horrific vision of like in a super lockdown draconian world where everybody's forced onto the same computing platform 
So everybody's got the same laws and rules that they're following. You could just architect all kinds of artificial scarcities and keep capitalism going forever. Um, but I don't think that's a very good societal design. I don't think we should start there uh, as a, as our our base. Um, you know, and maybe there's a tipping point in which the system we have looks silly enough to enough people. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this year politically hasn't challenged that view. I don't know what will. Well, no, not not yet. I feel like uh, we're you know we've reached a point where we can no longer effectively satirize our political system because it continues to just one up any satire you can think of in absurdity uh, on a daily basis. <laughs> Um, well, why don't we, well, we, we wrap up definitely there? definitely end there because yeah, this is going to get depressing otherwise. Thanks for listening uh, to this Express episode. Uh, please write to us. We love to hear from you guys. Uh, we really appreciate those who wrote in last time. And you can uh, find us on Twitter at RTF underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash review the future. And you can find us at our website, reviewthefuture.com. Until next time. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.